Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast pottering around the hooded figure interrupting the cozy if shabby evening of Mangum Reads. We are three muggles who also have comfortable jobs that are preferable to stints in Azkaban, a line that I wrote and now saying it, I feel more comfortable saying about two of us than the third. My name is Sarah. I am joined as always by my co-host BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? We'll let the audience assume who she means by that. <laughs> just leave, leave that one just hanging. Whomst among us. Um, is Florida Azkaban? Is, oh boy. Uh, there's, a, there's a term paper to be written there. That's a fun question. What do we assume the atmosphere of, of, of Azkaban is? I was kind of going, it's in the North Sea. I was kind of assuming more, you know, very English gloomy. I know, but there's like a, there's a Venn diagram of like swamp gas and mm, mm. <laughs> English so mist. My presumption was uh, that J.K. Rowling couldn't really remember how to spell Alcatraz. And <laughs> was just like, ah, it's fine. <laughs> Good enough. Good enough. So we are in on chapter two of the sixth book of Harry Potter, Spinner's End. We have our second, the the rare two prologue that are Do, nevertheless is called it just chapters. Two? Like, you know, are we actually, uh, we'll see. Uh, it's, well, but we at least get, two. At least two. At least two. Um, no spoilers, Sarah. No spoilers. I won't. <laughs> say anything although i got all of my chapters wrong last time so <laughs> you can't trust me anyway so it's fine mm-hmm. uh we have some segments that we do here we have a uh rapid fire recap we have uh bj's wizard wheezes newbie's notes with spencer we award house points which is going to be interesting this time around and then Three. we have questions and technically four uh questions and uh qualms and quibbles and queries i am going to Guess that I am not going to be able to answer many questions that you have about this chapter for reasons of spoilers. Well, Sarah, before we get into the meat of what you would prefer to avoid anyway, we've got your recap to start. Yeah. And I'm curious your thoughts about what's going to take to get this chapter summarized. Well, you know, there are two. This is one of those chapters that there are two ways to approach it. Uh, one is to give the five second summary. One is to give the five minute summary. Um, I have gone for the in-between, and therefore no one will be satisfied at the end of this. <laughs> that seems reasonable. So um, I'm going to put a bet in, though. I haven't put a, in a bet for a long time. I have no idea if I'm going to make it. If our listeners can't tell, I have a little bit of a cold. I'm trying not to sniff at people. I don't know if this is going to affect my time or not. Yes, the hope is that the wheezes are contained in my segment, <laughs> but we will see. They've... BJ's wheezes are contagious now. They have... Mm. Um, migrated over to the rapid fire recap. Um, but yeah, I'm going to put in a, now I am going to put in a cheater's bet. I'm going to put in a 155 bet. 155. Fine, fine, fine. A return to betting, you know, keep it easy enough. Sure. The 155 is written down. The stopwatch is ready whenever you are. Far away, two hooded figures pop into being riddled with anxiety. Narcissa and uh, Bellatrix argue about a decision and who to trust on their way to a crumbling house in a muggle neighborhood. Sissy says the Dark Lord trusts him. Bella thinks he's mistaken. The sisters reach the downstairs room on Spinner's Inn, knocking on a door that's eventually opened by Severus Snape, who's cordial to Narcissa, but seems like he'd rather not see Bellatrix. Narcissa's anxious about uh, to know whether they're alone, which they are, but for Wormtail, who's creeping about. 
they toast the Dark Lord before Bellatrix lays into Snape. She doesn't trust him, his movements during Voldemort's fall, his actions in the intervening years, and his relationships with Dumbledore and Harry. But Snape has a response couched in the fact that Voldemort has asked him all the same questions and still found him trustworthy. Ultimately, he's been an inside source at Hogwarts for Voldemort from the start, and many of his actions, from not attempting to find Voldemort to continue to continuing to teach at Hogwarts were undertaken at his direction in order to stay ensconced where he could glean the most information. Voldemort did question his loyalty periodically when he stood between him and the Sorcerer's Stone and when he returned late after his dark mark reappeared, but strategic waiting in the latter case meant that Dumbledore himself ordered Snape back to Voldemort without blowing his cover. Plus, because he's not Secret Keeper, he can't reveal the location of the Order of the Phoenix, and he couldn't kill Harry because it would turn Dumbledore against him, and there was more than a little speculation that Harry might actually unite Voldemort's followers. Snape's greatest usefulness to, uh, to Voldemort is the trust Dumbledore places in him. And now, why Narcissa has come. There's a plan that she's been forbidden to speak of, but Snape already knows about it. It involves Draco, and Narcissa is terrified for him, even if he will be honored above all others if he succeeds. Snape's, Snape insists he can't persuade Dumbledore, or Voldemort to do anything, and he won't uh, usurp Draco in what needs to be done, even if he will probably have to do it in the end. But he might be able to help Draco. Narcissa asks if he will swear it with an unbreakable vow. To Bellatrix's shock, he agrees. They link hands, Bellatrix performs the spell over a series of questions and answers, and the vow is sealed in fire. Well done, 152. Whew. A good return to form. Impressive. Thank you. Yes. That was a blinders on, get it done. Um, although my notes app has corrected every single instant of Narcissa into Narcissi, um, <laughs> which is really wigging me out a little bit. Hmm. BJ, what are, what are you wheezing about? Uh, I have a couple of things to, to wheeze about. <clears throat> a lot of um, interesting sentences this oh, chapter. <laughs> oh, do tell. Um, we've talked in the past about my feelings of uh, certain sentence structures that, that I think are problematic. Um, here's a fun one. Dark as, his, as her sister was fair, comma, with heavily lidded eyes and a strong jaw, comma, she did not take her gaze from Snape as she moved in to stand behind Narcissa. It's just such an interesting choice of how to do things i this kind of this almost feels like some of the complaints uh about male authors writing women (laughs) where there are really important things happening but we're gonna take some time out to tell you about how she looks because it matters and then we'll get back to things but in a weird way yeah it i mean it is a little it is a little awkward. I do think that my impression is that like Rowling is using a little bit of like uh, character descriptions and like those like individual pieces that she has highlighted before as shorthand to remind us who yeah. we might actually be talking about here, yes. which mm-hmm. doesn't make it less awkward, but at least it, provides a purpose for ser- it. I, I'm not saying there aren't purposes being served. Um, <laughs> they're just... You know, dark ones, shall we say. We Hmm. we can say dark ones. We can say dark Um, ones. We have a lot of colons in this uh, (laughs) chapter. Do we? count them. Speaking of awkward sentences. (laughs) These are just there. They're out in the world. Uh, Hmm. This can be easily arranged, colon. I shall speak to the Dark Lord, M-dash. And it ends there. And it's just, it's a... It's it's just a weird thing in the world. There, you know, there are just a lot of colons here. 
Yeah, um, I, you know, it's, I feel like it's common for people to say, oh, nobody should use a semicolon because nobody knows how to use it correctly. Rowling generally uses semicolons correctly. It is the objectively much more straightforward colon that she seems to have <laughs> literally no idea what to do with or how it is supposed to function in any sort of sentence. It it kind of reminds me of uh, there were printings of Shakespeare plays that had uh, like a character colon and then things that they said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and sometimes just what she does reminds me of that. <laughs> like she's almost doing um, stage directions as opposed to... Well, I mean... I, in so dialogue. I... The the only reason I am not harping on the M dashes and ellipses as much as I used to be is because I have decided that they are stage directions. They are for mm. they are for the reader to know when to pause, know when to do all of these things, and that, sure. and that's yeah. what they're conveying. As opposed, and they have a place. I it feels much more like. We are getting the transcribed audio version of the book than the other way around. But, you know, it it's fine. Well, hmm. until you get these jaunty little flourishes uh, with the fox as a character for a hot minute at the beginning of this chapter. <laughs> yes, that that was interesting. So, sorry, Sarah, five characters then. Five <laughs> characters, that's true. Which actually now there is a clear loser. The it's fox does not... <laughs> <laughs> Done. Uh, yeah, it's canon now. Um, no, I just want to point out, BJ, that I am I am really proud and a little stunned at the um, the graciousness with which you are treating some of these these things. You have come around um, to a generous reading of something that used to drive you up a wall, and I think that's growth. It, it's only taken half a dozen books and thousands <laughs> of pages, but we've growth. Growth has been observed. Growth, Stockholm syndrome, whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, this is this is just how it is, and and it's either fine or it's not. And so <laughs> I'm gonna. That's so healthy. <laughs> I'm gonna make decisions, and and how I deal with it, and how I deal with it is we are we're getting stage directions and that that's what these uh, things are you can only I, I, control your own reactions to things exactly. <laughs> I, I, I think it was a mad tv skit but i'm now reminded of lowered expectations <laughs> um i i think this is one of the last things that i have which is mostly i just want to acknowledge snape as i i'm pretty sure i've said this before but it, i think he just continues to be the best character that we have. <laughs> Gotta rank high. Um, because pretty much everybody else is, is insufferable or horribly <laughs> weird. Um, and I, I, I adore that Snape, from every just twisted, gnarled, actively sweating physical description we've ever gotten of him, and just how brutal he is to people around him, that he's coming across as the normal one in these stories. <laughs> I don't know about the normal one, but... He's Relatively. funny. So he is, he is the, that. Yes. Of course, you weren't a lot of used to him in prison, but the jester was undoubtedly fine. 
It's, it's such a good line. It's like, yes, your undying devotion was so useful, you were in prison and could do nothing. Good job. The man can cast shade like nobody's business. I, I loved his line of when, you know, uh, Bellatrix is trying to say, well, where were you when we were running dangers through the ministry? And Snape provides an explanation and then goes, but oh yeah, weren't you facing six teenagers, right? Okay, just want to make sure. <laughs> Moving on. I mean, eventually they head back up, you know? We we got there eventually, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, when Snape gets to release just unmitigated scorn on someone who just does not have the capacity to match him for that, it's truly something to behold. I, yeah. I, I would love if the scene appears in the adaptation because the condescending tone that he maintains, which is readily apparent through text throughout the entirety of this, would just be delightful coming out of Alan Rickman. Yeah. So I guess, is it that much of a spoiler to ask? If this scene yeah. occurs, um, isn't that much of a spoiler to ask? I don't... Or I get an answer. I mean, I, it's not a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. Um, I, um, I can't remember, to be honest with you. <laughs> that's you, you. You can check when I'm doing movies notes. <laughs> Um, I'm I'm looking. I'm trying to remember if it is. I seem to remember that it was. Yeah, it is because I remember. I'm not sure. Like I don't remember the extent of it, but I do remember that you like you see the unbreakable unbreakable vow. Like that is that is very yeah. memorable. Um, gotcha. So they did Spinner's End. It is just kind of a different. It's a little bit of a different feel. Gotcha. I can picture that. This, this uh, is a very literary kind of chapter in a way that would be kind of awkward to adapt, but I, yeah. I would be disappointed if it didn't make it in in some shape or form. Yeah. So the other thing that I can't that that I find very very funny, um, and might just you know it it kind of fits within universe and everything, but it's very very funny that the Dementors tortured all of the followers of Voldemort, and <laughs> it it's just such a funny like. They supported him before, they're supporting him again, and they're just like, oh, yeah, you were my buddy. I don't care. We're still going to torture you. Uh, yeah, and it is, like, that is one of the most, like, this is Dementors doing Dementors things. Like, they just don't, I don't think they have the, and this goes to the idea of, like, Fudge was nuts for putting Dementors in Azkaban and using them in that way in the first place, because, like, they just don't have the emotional or cognitive capacity to make those distinctions. Yeah. Like it's just not in their makeup. Yeah. I mean, this feels a lot like Dr. Evil and sharks. Like, yeah. Yeah. The sharks aren't evil. The sharks are going to do shark things. Yeah. The, the, yeah. They are loyal to who feeds them. Same is true for Dementors. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter who the prey is. They'll, no, if, it if really, prey, it really doesn't. They're going to eat it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> See, now I would just want, Dementors with frickin' laser beams. <laughs> that would just be <laughs> Too such much. A, a funny... Because I feel like they move in kind of the same way. They feel kind of, like, ghosty and hovery and, and silent. And and it's not making them any scarier. It's just dumb. <laughs> are you uh, wheezing about the, anything else? Uh, nope, that's all the... We, we, we are solidly the 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 other thing that i wanted to wheeze about and and <laughs> i i did find funny i was gonna say we were solidly out of the like generally funny things coming in but i did find the 
sissy sis like somebody decided that like there were going to be a couple paragraphs of significant oh. alliteration and <laughs> we just leaned into it but like not quite hard enough that anyone would just be like we need to change this or like are you seriously doing it it's like the the judge that that snuck poetry in yeah mm-hmm. yeah kind of thing it's like is this happening i can't really tell no i'm pretty sure all right well we've <laughs> moved on so it's fine <laughs> That feels right. Uh, yep. Uh, for newbie's notes, I I really liked this chapter. Just to start with that, I, this is a fun chapter just because there's been so many ones we've had, particularly at the end of books, which are kind of trying to get nine things done at the same time uh, in terms of how they're structured and what they need to cover. This is a very focused chapter, and it's coming from a forced perspective of characters that we wouldn't normally expect to get any insight into, and it's fun that we get that. And then get a very, we get a taste of new information, but it's still purposefully concealing a lot of further details to fully understand what we're getting. Spencer, this is this is what the second trilogy is all about. We get we get focus in the beginning, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and not at the end. Different mm-hmm. different perspectives. This is very similar to the uh, the Voldemort in the chair that we had in, in a previous <laughs> book. It, you know. And and this this is the you know the meat and potatoes until you get your dessert of uh, all the toppings on your ice cream cone at the end. That is indeed how this works, and I'm in, I'm starting to realize many books in that I like kind of like the intro chapters in terms of them being <laughs> very well crafted, very focused, and of a very limited perspective. It has a lot of the same hallmarks of what we think was the intro chapter of maybe the last book or the one before of where. We get to see the back of a chair that Voldemort is in as the yeah. groundskeeper's walking up to the house. Oh, this yeah, is a that's a lot uh, of those vibes. That's book four, I believe. Been a bit. Yeah. Uh, another thing I also just appreciate from a literary standpoint is shorthand to understanding a character. It's the literary equivalent of putting a black hat on your villain. Uh, J.K. Rowling speed run it here in terms of murdering Fox within two paragraphs of <laughs> intro into scene. Understood. Bad guy. I, I need I need to get no further. It, it mm-hmm. it's also interesting. Like it's it's such a funny thing because I feel like one of them is more evil than the other, and you get that from this thing. And it's like it could have been an aura, and it's like no, <laughs> it clearly couldn't have been an aura. Like you're wh- you're you're whipping your wand about and doing dumb things, and it probably was just sitting and doing nothing like and also if even if it is like if it is an or you're also terrible <laughs> who did the yeah, killing but, like reasonably terrible like in this in there yeah in there yeah was it, it bellatrix was, it was, was bellatrix, it bellatrix yeah it, it no bellatrix, it was bellatrix okay. yeah well, of course it was bellatrix just, just checking i mean they're both arguably on the side of evil here but right but what is interesting is the... not as strange Narcissus is not as strange, and what I think we get from this chapter that, like, I guess this is sort of spoilery, but becomes part of her hallmark going forward, is, like, how deeply she identifies as a mother, as her first and foremost among all. I thought you were going to say that Bellatrix wears fur, but... (laughs) It's very Cersei Lannister that her redeeming traits are her love for her children and her cheekbones, in terms of just how this character works. That's exactly it. That's uh, exactly it. I, I like how you have cheekbones as a redeeming quality, Spencer. <laughs> I, I'm just quoting Tyrion Lannister there. Um, ah. But 
it is it, it, it's also fun just to see I, I enjoy I've actually it's a very common trope but to do the purpose purposeful visual difference between siblings and one is visibly dark and one is visibly yeah. light and then yeah. efforts made to play with and subvert that if they both are on the side of Voldemort though the sibling that is specifically coded as lighter has been given a redeeming trait that her darker coded sibling at least so far hasn't um, it's also very interesting to have played out in this chapter that Everyone trusts Snape. Everyone. Except Bellatrix. Except for, there are two people that don't trust Snape over the entire course of this series. Bellatrix and Harry Potter. That's it. Everybody else is the first Snape I'm pretty sure Ron and Hermione aren't. Hermione is on that list more. I don't think Ron is. Um, uh, to a certain degree, I think Ron and Hermione are just humoring Harry when it comes to their opinions on Snape. Before they're just, oh, oh, right, yeah, Snape, he's terrible. N- I, no, I, Ron, Ron definitely doesn't like Snape for the I, simple reason that <laughs> Snape tries to teach him things, and Ron, <laughs> there it is, is not there yep. for it. Okay, <laughs> there it that, is. <laughs> that is not a deep enough hate to get on this list. It's just not. Ron, Ron does not hate deeply enough to have anything resembling what uh, Harry uh, brings against Snape or Bellatrix, apparently. Sure. Oh, just wait until we see more of Jenny's boyfriends. Ron hates deeply. <laughs> what, it, it, what, what's interesting, too, is that Harry doesn't like Snape because Snape's unpleasant to him. That's just what everything that we've seen before, and that he's got a built-in distrust, largely driven by the fact that Snape has been unpleasant to him and Harry can hold a grudge like nobody's business. Bellatrix has notes. Bellatrix has actually thought this out to a certain degree, why she doesn't trust and like this guy. And she goes down the list as if she had been actually, like, you know, working this out in evenings in case he ever brought this up so that she could pull out her notes and bring them to bear. So I I think that that probably is part of, like, the like the, the happenings of Azkaban. Like, we... we She's got a lot of time. Yeah. And, yeah. like, people deal with it in different ways. And what better way to deal with it than uh, harboring a grudge? Well, and she spends so much, and I think it comes out in this chapter too, like she clearly values the idea that she is Voldemort's right-hand woman. Mm-hmm. And the Doesn't suggestion, yeah, the suggestion that Snape has somehow been put in this privileged position and has been serving this role is like, has completely gotten under her craw. Um, and she has spent a lot of time thinking about it. Do you think... I, this is more for Spencer because Sarah, I assume you know, but do you think Bellatrix uh, thinks that she is romantically involved with Voldemort? I get in decided decided Harley Quinn and Joker vibes when it comes to this. Though uh, uh, so yes and no, actually, this chapter gave me a different read on the character than I thought before. I do think that she has romantic intentions and thinks that she's you know his woman in a variety of different ways, but. I previously kind of seen her as being more of like a cackling mad kind of character that is just not that involved or not that thinking logically or several steps ahead. But this is actually a relatively well organized depiction of the character we get in this chapter that she has problems with Snape. They're not pure. I mean, the reasons for them are purely emotional, but she's logically thought out what reasons she can have to justify what she's feeling and is ready to present them. She's consistently talking with her sister and trying to persuade her in a certain direction away from talking to Snape for logical reasons. This is a... I, had, I, did not, I clearly did not have a fully accurate read on this character, I think, maybe before this chapter. Uh, what makes it, I'm sure, all the more disastrous for her, though, is that Snape prepared for his deposition and is just 
line by line, ready to go through every single one of these points. He has receipts. He has alibis. Does he? he? Unassailable credibility witnesses. Does he? I. But here's the thing. I think Snape's full of shit to her. I think Snape is a double agent. I think he is loyal to the cause of what I will refer to simply as the good guys. Do you think Snape lies? I think Snape lies more than he, more than he tells the truth in terms of what we've seen of him in the books previously. But I like think, in this chapter, do you think Snape ever lies? I think he BJ. Is right now, you sound like you're talking about Wheel of Time and um, I don't, pinging I don't, us oh, on gonna, all of the I have things to say about Wheel of Time. Uh, no, BJ. I think he's being very careful in how he presents things. He's being very much intentionally misleading. But I think he's being very careful to offer truths as a means of being misleading. I mean, it's an example of just what he's willing to concede is purposefully deceptive in a way that makes him come across as if he's being more honest. And uh, and I think he basically says, why don't you ask somebody that you will never ask a question of and find out <laughs> for literally everything instead of ever answering a question is, I think I now know why you really like this chapter, Spencer. <laughs> This, this is, is a very this lawyerly a chapter. This was... <laughs> it, it, it's, it's straight up a cross-examination of where th- th- this was a young attorney coming in, cocky as all hell, that they had the perfect questions ready to ask, and it's an experienced witness on the other side that is just casually throwing out the perfect answers that can't ever be attacked. And it, it, his, his most unassailable point is, Voldemort trusts me, and no one can hide anything from Voldemort, Right? Did he? What, what, what is the term for what he is? He's a, a legilimens or something like that? Legilimens, yeah. Legilimens. That he's the most accompli- accomplished legilimens in the world. And he trusts me. He trusts me with secret information. And why aren't you asking him why that's the case? Which, Beltrix obviously doesn't want to touch that one with a 10 foot pole. BJ, like we were saying, that right, one of the smart things one. that Stape does with respect to the answers he provides is that he concedes the small, irrelevant points to make it look like he's being more honest. That he concedes that, yeah, I thought the Dark Lord was dead. A lot of people did. Sorry, you know, that one's on me. Uh, yes, I preferred being a professor and living a life of comfort rather than being an Azkaban. Sorry, sorry I was being selfish in that regard. But look, I accomplished a lot more than you did while you were behind bars. Yeah, I, I didn't want Quirrell to get anything because he's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that yep. one too is that I have no way of knowing the Dark Lord is back, nor reason to assume he was occupying the back of an annoying fellow <laughs> professor's head. So I stopped him because he sucked. Again, maybe it's not a good idea to keep me out of the loop, hence why the Dark Lord is now no longer doing that. It's a very effective strategy to accomplish what I think he is being as being a double agent on behalf of the good guys here that is magnificent in misdirecting and earning trust in the... Um, I will admit, though, that there are, I don't necessarily think there are flaws, but it is a, a cold-bloodedness that I wasn't expecting in terms of what is being done to maintain Snape's cover if what he is representing here is accurate. Here's a, here's a possible lie here, BJ, or it's a notable point, is that in the list of impressively cruel examples of the unjustify the means, he admits that he was the one that basically got Emmeline Vance killed. Character we know in the last chapter, character we knew, member of the Order of the Phoenix, he is taking the credit for her death by revealing information that arranged for the Dark Lord himself to arrive to kill her. Now, if we assume that that is true, and I kind of do it is, that is an 
that is a level of you know, logic of the necessary casualty of war that I wasn't expecting the good guys to engage in. I mean, do, I do, doubt do Emily Vance volunteered for it either. He's being like enigmatic about this. Oh, when you say enigmatic, how do you mean it? Uh, you know, trying to de- deceive them, or or you actually think that he's being. It's one of the things of where I kind of with you that I I think Snape is pointedly trying to tell no lies. I think yes. it is easier for him to not tell yeah. any lies with respect to his deception. And so I don't think he's just making up something out of whole cloth when he's taking the credit for that. I'm yes. actually willing to believe that he put in motion some of the things that got that woman killed. Whether it's as explicit or direct as he claims, I can't say for sure. But that, again, so, much so of what... you think that... that... That you know, in in his being enigmatic, he's letting you know some 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 of the good guys die just so like it's unclear exactly what what's happening and how much knowledge he, as part of uh, the good guys that that are passing on secrets, mm-hmm. uh, might have. It, it aids in his cover in a variety of different ways, and I think it's if, if indeed this is true that if indeed he was willing to sacrifice this loyal member of their cause for the sake of persisting in his also necessary cover. I picture that being a conversation that he had exclusively with Dumbledore and something that was agreed upon between the two of them. And that would be a conversation I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for. So you could call him something of a code breaker. <laughs> Perhaps so, good job. Uh, I adore Snape's summary of Harry. Uh, <laughs> I think it mirrors a lot of the discussions that we've had before about the character, about him effectively summarizing him as, uh, like, I quote, He's fought his way out of a number of tight corners by a simple combination of sheer luck and more talented friends. I think we have literally said that almost word for word on a few prior podcast episodes. You know who also thinks that? One Minerva McGonagall. Yep. 100%. I thought you were going to say me for a second. I, I won't go as far as he goes with the next line of we're calling him, like, fundamentally mediocre, of where yeah. I, I don't think that has as much bearing from what we've seen, but the rest is not an inaccurate summary, and Sarah, like you said, it's one that's shared in-universe by more people than maybe <laughs> not. I'm pretty sure that Dumbledore also thinks the same. Well, we also get Snape saying that Dumbledore's biggest flaw is that he has to believe the best in people, so he may feel it, but I don't know if he thinks it in terms of when, he comes to, when it comes to Harry. I, I think that, that, that thinking that Harry is mediocre but has great friends around him is maybe not the best of Harry, but pretty good of him. It, when, when, when compiling the various aspects of Harry, that one's got to be on the list. Sure. What do you, what, how do you guys feel about uh, Snape's summary of Dumbledore's flaw? Do you think it's an accurate depiction, or is he just playing into the, miscon- the, the willful misconceptions of his audience? Is it a flaw? Is it? Oh, I'll rephrase. Is it an accurate character trait? We can debate it whether is. it's a flaw. I so yeah. I, I think he's talking very personally there, mm-hmm. um, and I think that Snape has had has had uh, a war, a torn conscience, and, and maybe a, a some warring voices in his head about where his loyalties lie, mm-hmm. and has gotten the the output of Dumbledore's trust and a like he trusts me unconditionally and I think Snape understands more about his shortcomings than uh like we 
because we don't have like access to like inside his head i i think that they snape understands how he treats harry is a flaw i think that he's not as like mentally committed to the side of good as he wants to be and things like that and so he sort of views that dumbledore is seeing the best of people and he, he himself as a flaw i largely agree uh i think this is in keeping with a lot of what we've seen of snape butting heads with dumbledore in the past of where snape views that he has the perfect accurate just straight up honest read on everyone else around him and he cannot understand and does deeply resents that dumbledore continues to trust and like and just overlook flaws of people that have been from snape's perspective torturing him for years you know harry's dead and severus and everything else being very much an example that we saw of that previously <laughs> what you said severus and it, it fits but is funny sorry uh you know what i mean um <laughs> i know you mean serious but yeah. that's very perfect uh, it was uh so I, I'm with you that that feels like a very personal read of Snape's character assessing Dumbledore, a person that he's very loyal to, that he trusts implicitly. I think their relationship is one of mutual trust and support and love and caring. But I think it's something that Snape can never overlook, that he does see this as a fundamental flaw of Dumbledore's character as lived through his own life and perspectives on those around him. Sarah, what do you think? I think that that's probably true. I think he certainly believes that... He certainly he certainly knows that his audience is going to believe that that is Dumbledore's biggest flaw. Sure. He certainly believes that that is a character aspect of Dumbledore. Um, I think that he waffles back and forth on whether he actually believes that it's a flaw or not because he himself has benefited from benefited from it immensely and mo- multiple times. Um, I'm not sure. I think that one of Snape's kind of driving character motivations is that he doesn't believe that he should have been given that grace. Um, yeah, and therefore probably does feel like it's a flaw of Dumbledore's, despite the fact that he has benefited from it, um, because he doesn't feel like uh, he doesn't feel like he deserves it, um, potentially. I, but I think he means it. I think he means I, I also, it in this conversation. I feel like Snape also sort of recognizes that, like that he he feels that most of the people that dumbledore gives grace to don't deserve it yeah but like he sees like the outcome like um hagrid yeah um and uh trelawney like there are so many people that it's just like if i were in charge none of these people would would get any of this grace and and i think he understands that but is also like yeah but that would be a problem yeah, it, it plays into a certain aspect of self-loathing of the character, where he, he, yeah. he openly acknowledges that he wouldn't do that, but then rationally understands that it's a better thing that Dumbledore did, and knows that he wouldn't have, and that the world would have been worse off if he'd been in that position. It, it's interesting then as well, though, that I also feel like he's being perfectly honest when he's telling Narcissa and Bellatrix that, oh yeah, Dumbledore just screwed me out of the position as being, you know, uh, defense against the Dark Arts Master, yeah. and that was purely <laughs> from lack of trust. I also think he's being perfectly honest there, too. Yeah. Um, and I think that has nothing to do with him formerly being a Death Eater and just <laughs> being Snape. It's just like you would be insufferable as the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, we cannot, and I do not want you to. We cannot have this happen. Um, we are, and this is, just as a note, we are in this book going to get more opportunities to 
relive and think about some of uh, some of Dumbledore's generosity uh, mm. towards people and whether they deserved it or not and how it worked out. So um, that's a sort of put a pin in that because it's it comes up again and again in this book. It's notable that in the last book, Dumbledore kind of said something similar when he was assessing his own flaws about that, you know, his desperate desire to have friends and people he could talk to and people he could care about factored into some problems in terms of how he went about events. Yeah. That yeah. at least overlaps with Snape's assessment of the character. Um, there's several questions I have that Sarah won't answer, but I'll save those for later. But one thing I found notable is that as much as Snape is doing a masterclass in maintaining this charade, keeping the masquerade up, there is a moment that it drops in a way that he plays off as something else. That previously we've only really seen Snape emotional and show anger when it came to like his own protection of himself, his own memories, like when Harry looked into the pensieve. Uh, that was the yeah. moment we ever saw Snape just straight pissed. Um, Otherwise, Snape's maintained just a general level of sarcasm almost as the defense to what his real emotions would have been. I found it notable here that when Narcissa begins to cry, show honest emotion and concern about her son, Snape looks away as if the tears were indecent. He's playing it off yeah. as, oh, look at this breach of decorum, but the implication here is that he's emotionally affected by seeing someone else so distraught in this, in this case. Yeah. That is an emotional empathy of a character of the character that we haven't really had a chance for previously and i appreciated seeing it for what is a chapter to give us a more well-rounded understanding of the character yeah um but before we get into all of the questions i have sarah five characters who wins who loses <laughs> five characters. our plucky little fox poor poor guy um i'm gonna leave the fox aside he is um enshrined in our hearts forever <laughs> Yes. Honorable mention in all ways for all time. Honorable mention. Um, you know, this is kind of a tricky chapter to do winners and losers for. Um, sorry, Hagrid's motorbike is going by outside my window. Um, it's kind of tricky because, well, there are a lot of variables that go that go into each of these, right? So I think that there is a case that Snape won this chapter um, because he was the perfect witness. He survived cross-examination um and in fact came out on top and probably more trusted if not specifically by bellatrix um more trustworthy in um kind of the pantheon of death eaters and all of that uh and we as readers got explanations for him but we don't know what he's vowing to do at the end of this which is a little bit of a sticking point for me in <laughs> Yeah, I he did a masterful job in main, doing his job. He, he, masterful yeah. work in doing his job. We've yeah. seen that. But I feel like there were two major concessions in this chapter that could... A, shows just the cost of this on him as a person if we're, I'm right that he's a double agent. And B, show the potential cost going forward. Like you said, cost going forward. This vow seems like a big damn deal in a way that... He's giving up something. He's giving up a certain freedom of will in a way that feels like it's going to cost him in the future. Yeah. But even looking back, if I'm right, he helped murder a friend. That has to... I don't see this guy as being that cold. That being indifferent to those around him. That willing to so casually brush aside people that have earned his trust and he cares about, maybe. So mm. I have to believe that this is a job, as much as he's skilled at it, that is actively daily hurting him. Yeah, I, I think I agree. And I think, you know, with 
with that background, I think that the the winner of this chapter, as much as she was like crumpled and wailing on the floor, like the winner of this chapter is Narcissa because she got what she wanted out of this. I mm-hmm. mean, as much she got a major concession and a major benefit out of this. In terms of characters that improve the most in this chapter, I think it's got to be her. Before she yeah. came into this room hat in hand, convinced that, you know, it was a Hail Mary, that she was giving her any benefit at all to save the life of her son, and now whatever an unbreakable vow may be, she has one. And that seems to have bolstered her spirits in a way that she could didn't even anticipate was possible. Yeah. Yep. And so... I mean, I feel... Go ahead, BJ. Go ahead. No, you're good. I was going to say, I feel like the discussion about... about uh Wormtail losing he didn't change in how terrible no. his life is his life is exactly the same now no i think that bellatrix is the loser here other than our fox um yep. partially because i mean in that conversation i mean snape just frog splashed her off the top rope like it was i mean it was done what it was not only done but she's left in a position of where she doesn't want to but she's convinced now that snape's on her side Yes, like, he has made such a compelling argument. And she does not like that. As you said, Sarah, she wants to believe that she is Voldemort's one and only and that there are no other rivals. But now every one of her points has been rebutted and Snape pulled something so out of left field that she was laughing at the thought of it until he acted actively does it in front of her. It, yep. She, she is really disconcerted that now she's having a better understanding of who Voldemort's true followers really are. Maybe. Maybe. So would you say that, that Wormtail, despite all his rage, is just a rat in a cage? <laughs> yes, quite accurately. <laughs> quite accurately, BJ. Well done. Uh, shall we go into questions? Let's do it. What's an unbreakable vow? So <laughs> so before, before you get into what's an unbreakable vow, is this the Oath Rod? Because it a thousand percent is the oath rod. It came in threes. Like it, th- this is. It is. Would, it is not unlike. It is not unlike the oath rod. Um, what, is the, what is the oath rod for our our wheel of time fans? Uh, Spencer, I thought you were reading book one. I apparently have not gotten to that point yet in book one. So Wait, you oath- started this like a year ago, <laughs> Jesus Spencer. There were anyway. intervening events. The oath rod is. Um, the magical object upon which Aes Sedai swear their vows uh, to, I guess, the Order of Aes Sedai. Um, so we've gotten a lot of Wheel of Time references in this yeah. particular podcast. It is not unlike the the <clears throat> the Oath Rod. So an un excuse me, an unbreakable vow is a and Spencer. These are your favorite types of all of the things. It's a binding magical contract. Oh, I love um, it. Go on. Cast between two parties mm-hmm. and um, witness required. Witness required, you do actually have to have the third person there, like actually uh, both witnessing and um, kind of casting the spell itself. They also have to be a notary, Um, understood. Yes. And the consequences of breaking an unbreakable vow is that um, if it's broken by either party, it results in imminent death. Ah! Hence the, like a rope, a fiery snake coiling around their arms. Yes. And also Bellatrix's reaction if she... Um, harbored lingering doubts about Snape's willingness to carry through on this. His offer to um, make an yeah. unbreakable vow is like that has real consequences in the yeah. world. And with, with Bellatrix being the one to administer it too. Yes, yes. So do you think that there would be things that Snape would not have agreed to? 
I think that there probably would have been. Um, we we don't know what Draco's been sent to do, right? We have no, we no frame of reference whatsoever as to what that is. No, just do that, you think Snape knows? Yes. I yes, do. I do. Okay, I and I do, and I like. I happen to know that he yeah, knows. He does. Yeah. Um, but I also I think also, I, like, know, I know what's going on. But in like, the reading of this, yeah. In the reading of this, I assumed that Snape yeah. did in fact know what that was because, like, if he didn't and he agreed to do an unbreakable <laughs> vow around this, like, that is so batshit crazy. I can't. <laughs> but also, like, if he never knows, like, if he never knows what it is, like. Can he break it or can he not break it? Like, I don't know what, what what's going on there. Because yeah. like, it, it's such a, a weird uh, lawyery things in magic worlds get weird. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Rules lawyers and magic go hand in hand. The, yep. It's uh, it's really interesting. Um, I And I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because I do think that, like, part of the Aes Sedai-ness of this is not only in how... Snape answers questions at the beginning of this, but in the specific vows that he agrees to. Um, Because there's some, there's room for interpretation around those, I would say. So what he specifically agrees to, I'm going to get the actual language. It was three part. It's three parts. Um, Okay. Will you, Severus, watch over my son Draco as he attempts to fulfill the Dark Dark Lord's wishes? That one seems pretty easy. Snape has already been kind of watching over Draco. Anyway. The, dark, the Dark Lord's wishes is vague in terms of how that could be interpreted. And right what first. watch over means is also, <laughs> also Assign pretty him vague. homework in potions. <laughs> well, well, I will not... see him for the uh, one double potions class that I have with him each week. <laughs> Lawyer did not write the first part of that contract. Part two. And will you, to the best of your ability, protect him from harm? That one's harder to get around. Yes. Um, while how harm do you might define harm? A, Squishy definition. Squishy, but it it lends itself broadly. I mean, the squishiness goes larger than it goes smaller. So this this has the feel of like Asimov's Asimov. three laws. Very Asimov. Yeah. The third part, and should it prove necessary, if it seems Draco will fail, will you carry out the deed that the Dark Lord has ordered Draco to perform? That one is. That one's pretty ironclad. That's more well, specific. It, it's but, very ironclad as long as you ignore the first clause, which, you know, is very much in line with certain interpretations of things. What, it, it, whatever, it's ambiguous about it when you were going to interpret that he's likely to fail, but it basically guarantees the Dark Lord's action has to happen. Yes. Well, so, but should it become necessary doesn't mean anything. It, mean, it, it means necessary that, to what? The, fulfill, the, the clause two is clearly clearly modified by that line line in clause one. That the necessary thing is the deed has to be accomplished. Yes. Tell me how you feel about well ordered militias, Spencer. <laughs> uh, ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> but what is also interesting about this this third clause is that it relates directly back to something Snape himself said earlier in this chapter, which is that he's probably going to have to do it anyway. In the first place. So he's already accepted that he's going to have to do whatever this thing is. What do we think this is? I mean, I rank speculation, but my BJ, you have a theory already? I think BJ's been spoiled. I, I, I Spencer's also been spoiled. Hopefully he just doesn't remember. <laughs> well, that's almost a guarantee, knowing me. 
it, 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 <laughs> we know it's dangerous. We know that it is assumed by Narcissa that it is almost unlikely that Draco could accomplish it and that any failure in it could cost him his life. That's almost yeah. intentional in her assumption based on the Dark Lord looking to punish Lucius and his family for what it, for what went down. Which feels I think really freaking unfair given that Lucius had very little role in that going wrong. The reading of the text makes lends it towards trying to kill Harry. It lends it towards yeah. something happening at Hogwarts. Because otherwise, it wouldn't make sense to even send Draco, or that Snape Why thinks he's going to fill it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and like the the like they've already tried it, and like it hasn't worked. This feels like killing Harry because a bunch of people have tried. Voldemort has tried in various situations, and what else is really dangerous at Hogwarts? I mean, other than like the entire forest around it, but like <laughs> the, the 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 biggest danger at Hogwarts, is people trying to kill Harry. It, in my mind, this falls into one of two categories. It's either get the new MacGuffin... <laughs> Not or, to Harry. It, it's either get the new MacGuffin, that whatever the new MacGuffin of this book is, in terms of thing that is needed to aid in the cause of the Dark Lord, because we've seen that those always exist in some way at Hogwarts, and they're always dangerous, blah, blah, blah. Or it's murder. Those are the categories I think it naturally lends itself towards. Yeah, and there's I mean, no reason it can't be both, to be fair. Yeah. Very, very much so, Yes. You've gotten to the crux of the matter. Uh, let's see. What are the questions that I have? Dumbledore's serious injury? Do we have any idea what that is, where the hell that came out of? We do not, but we will find out. It's this like, is the first reference that we have had to that. So that came out of nowhere. It yeah. was just like assumed as like background knowledge by by the by, by Stape just saying, oh yeah, Dumbledore's really fucking badly hurt. Like, I didn't see that last book. We, yeah. um, we will see that, well... We will see that soon. I think we see it in the next chapter. Um, but as as evidenced, we, we cannot. We, we will or we won't, BJ. Uh, uh, other questions. Have Narcissa and Bellatrix always been color-coded in the way that they are? Or is this in some way a product of their actions in life? Oh, do, does Narcissa go blonde when she marries into the Malfoy family? <laughs> <laughs> It, okay, she sure. Just assiduously is it, is it dyes her hair every fortnight. <laughs> oh, that's not how I was thinking. She just sure. goes blonde. Yeah, she might have done that too. Um, as far as we know, they've always been color coded like this. They actually do something kind of cool with um, the character and the costuming in the movies, where Narcissa has the almost like Lucius's stark white. Mm-hmm. almost Targaryen like hair. Yeah, we but have she to has the, a, the chapter. Yeah, but in the movies, she has a streak of black underneath it. Hmm. Um which I actually think is super interesting. Um and it makes her like a very striking character on screen. Hmm. Yeah. Um but that also would suggest that she is dying it in some way or magically changing it. Or maybe she's like Nymphadora Tonks who is part of that family anyway. So or maybe she's a, uh, you know, gone rogue. Oh, well done, BJ. Bravo. Uh, last one for me. Did Bellatrix have a role in civilized society or did have any known role in civilized society before the last war? Like, was she an established entity or did she just emerge to relevance by being a follower of the Dark Lord? I don't, I don't think we have any information about that from the books. I am going to do just a quick search to see if they have any of her, like, I early life. She was like, uh an appointment secretary at the Ministry of Magic. <laughs> that that feels right for her. Okay, so she was, after graduating from Hogwarts, Bellatrix became a Death Eater. 
This was like kind of expecting this character where she just all the all the symbols all the symbols all the emblems of I'm a Death Eater and not that's much what else. she does. Yeah, that's literally all she she has been. Resume eats death. Yeah, done. Done. It's like having a TV show for your personality. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any, uh, any questions for you, BJ? Uh, no, I. We're, we're getting into territory where I can't ask questions, so... You know things? <laughs> he didn't know anything about the middle books at all, but now yeah. he knows the end of the stuff. Okay, yeah, so... I mean, it's stuff like that, and it's like, I also, like, I... There are things that I know I can ask questions about, but this yeah. is a bad chapter. This is a bad chapter for it, yeah. Um, but we do get Shower? to look at chapter three, yeah. So next up is Will and Won't. Spencer, what does our chapter picture look like? Uh, there are three people that are sitting on the couch that resemble the Dursleys that appear to have things growing out of them. I think uh, that your picture on your phone is oh, just no, a little wait, too wait. small. <laughs> I, I've zoomed in. These are glasses of, of we'll talk like maybe wine or brandy that are kind of balancing on top of their heads. Or perhaps levitating near them. It, it could be that, but it really looks like it's attached to their face. Like It does. That's some, true. Someone super glued some wine glasses. <laughs> I... So I think that's one of the problems with this uh, art style is it's kind of like hieroglyphs where trying to show a sense of depth where everybody like there's enough shading on the face to like really make that three dimensional. I mean, they do. They do have it. But just like yeah, but there is something there is something weird about the objects and the people together here. Yeah. Well, it appears we have a Dursley focused chapter, so I'm guessing we're finally checking in with Harry now. Three chapters into a book. By the final book of the series, it'll be four chapters before we see Harry. Correct. Well, <laughs> this also kind of looks like AI drew it. <laughs> like their feet, their feet don't <laughs> aren't right. <laughs> J.K. Rowling's publisher invented AI for the sole purpose of making the, the picture, the chapter pictures for this book. There are some weird things going on with the feet here. This, this is not my favorite photo in terms of photo. My favorite picture to start off a chapter. No. Um, so, we've so got some weird ones the, in this the book. The biggest problem that, that you have, Spencer, with, with having the digital edition is that for every chapter that has people, you could have inserted a little, like, clip of the audiobook with the different characters and it could have been animated and it would have been so on brand for the book and they didn't do it oh yeah it would have been like the portraits mm. moving exactly. around uh, that would man, be that, so cool that, that is a wasted opportunity right there I, just an odd thing did i just forget that the youngest dursley was blonde you just forgot that yeah okay i hadn't pictured that way in my head yep he's always been blonde well, y'all, I'm very much looking forward to talking the next chapter with you. Hopefully sometime here soon as part of our quest to finish off this book in a one-year time period. Our quest, your New Year's resolution, Spencer. <laughs> Made before New Year's, but yes, I'm committed to it. <laughs> Spencer, All right, this you're, has been... the, you're the uh, Harry Potter with, with friends to bolster you along <laughs> in this quest. <laughs> Meanest thing you've said about me in a while, PJ. <laughs> Talk to y'all later. Oh, on that note, bye guys. <laughs>